All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and grab those. Philippians chapter 4 as we continue through our series called Joy Field. And let me make you aware of a couple of things. Uh, Christmas Eve service will be this Friday, uh, 5 p.m. So uh, if you'd like to be here for that, we will sing songs together. We will read the Lord's uh, story of his birth, and we will uh, share in the Lord's Supper together. And uh, we will actually, hopefully, Lord willing, close out uh, this last little section of Philippians in a, in a little tiny uh, section of, of study there. And so I invite you to that. Also out in the lobby, uh, you might have saw it as you came in, 52 Weeks with Jesus is our 2022 Bible reading plan. Uh, each week has about five verses and a little tiny chapter to help explain those. If you thought the Chronological Bible was great, but maybe too much, maybe it was a, a lot coming in at once, this should slow things down a little bit and, and give you something to go through with others in the church. And uh, that would be our prayer, that over the next 52 weeks, you would fall more in love with Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's, that's our prayer as a church. This morning, as we get into these verses, um, actually one through nine, uh, these verses are powerful verses. Uh, many of them will sound familiar to a lot of us. And uh, honestly, there are some times when you come across uh, verses, and those are the verses that, man, that's, that's exactly what God had for me. And that happened for me this week. And so we're going to look at a joy-filled course of action. A joy-filled course of action, no matter where you are, you need to figure out where you're going. A course of action is a procedure adopted to deal with a situation. And I imagine that many of us, we come in here and we are maybe facing difficult situations. We found ourselves in some kind of predicament and we uh, might be in a time of turmoil or frustration or uncertainty. And we need a course of action that leads to a joy-filled life. And so this is where Paul kind of breaks it down pretty quickly. Let me read through these, these verses, and uh, you follow along with the Bible there that you have. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eurodia and I entreat Synthachi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we jump into your word today, we would ask that your spirit would lead and guide us, that you would lead us into truth, that your spirit would speak to our hearts with fresh soil, that we would hear your love and your grace and your mercy, and that we would run towards your kindness that leads us to repentance. So, Father, we thank you for these verses. We thank you that they are verses that we all need to hear, and we thank you that they come from the inspiration of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. 
A joy-filled course of action, number one, is agreeing in Christ. Now, I will spend the majority of the time on this one point. We have five points, so don't get carried away if I say, and point number two, and you're like, we're just now to point number two. It's okay. I, I know that I'm not going to be equal in all five points, but the first one here is agreeing in Christ. He says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eurodia and I entreat Synthache to agree in the Lord. I want these two to agree. Now, can we just say awkward moment? If you think about this in context, this letter was written to the church and the church was probably reading it aloud and all of a sudden these two women are in the crowd and they're nodding their heads like, yes. Yes, that's good. Mm, amen, Paul. And then I want to tell you about these two women. And then they're like, oh, that's super awkward getting called out in the middle of everyone. But what is being addressed is that conflict happens. Conflict happens. It happens even amongst devout believers and followers of Christ. Maybe you've been a part of a church that's had conflict, that's disagreed. Conflict happens at Christmas. Can you believe that? You know, without getting into the story, I can tell you many years ago that one of the biggest conflicts that took place in our family happened on Christmas morning with extended family. And by God's grace, with years of counseling, we've been able to work through agreeing in Christ. So I know that for many of us, this time of year may not be a time of joy, but a time of conflict. As homes are divided, as people are dealing with different things, as they have disagreements over what is right and what is wrong, conflict and disagreements are not necessarily a sin, but how we handle them can either be sinful or sanctifying. They can either lead us into sin or they can lead us into the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. Now, what we need to realize is that if we do not agree in the Lord, that there can be some damage that is done in conflict. Because when believers disagree, the Lord's reputation can be harmed. You know, he writes to this church and he's like, listen, you, you're representing the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if you're gonna allow this disagreement to go on, he doesn't tell us what the disagreement is. Uh, one wise man that I spoke with this morning said it was they were arguing about whose name was harder to pronounce. But we don't know what they're arguing about. We just know that there's a disagreement, and as a church who represents Christ, they have, the, they have the, um, the esteemed privilege of representing him in a way that isn't harmed. When believers disagree, the church's ministry can be hindered. It's almost as if Paul has to stop in the middle of this letter to address this issue because Listen, these, these women were serving faithfully. They were, they were with me. They uh, entreat them to agree in the Lord because the ministry now is being hindered. When believers disagree, the body of Christ can be hurt. If each and every one of us is a part of the body, if we're a body part, and that body part becomes injured or wounded, it goes on injured reserve. Well, I just don't feel like I can do anything right now. And the whole part, the whole body hurts because one part is wounded. And we know this, when believers disagree, the Christian's joy can be hampered. It's hard to have joy when you're disagreeing with brothers and sisters in Christ, am I right? It's hard to be joy-filled when there's disagreements and conflicts in your family. He says, so I entreat you to agree in the Lord, verse two. Agree in the Lord. 
What's interesting is Paul doesn't seem to indicate who's right and who's wrong, but they are both to agree. He's not picking sides of what's right and what's wrong. And so the pursuit of a joy-filled unity isn't discovering who's right and who's wrong, but rather finding an agreement in Christ. Now, when there's usually a conflict and people want to come in and help, what do they do? They choose sides. And you can imagine a church that is in conflict then becoming, well, I'm on so-and-so's team. Well, I think so-and-so's right. And so there's a possibility of even a church separating or splitting because of a disagreement. Now, what we realize here is that this disagreement was obviously not a doctrinal disagreement. If it was a doctrinal disagreement, then we believe, based on how Paul writes, that he would address it like if it was about circumcision, like previous chapters. But he doesn't. He just says, listen, I know you two are not getting along, and I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Tony Morita puts it this way, agreement like this doesn't mean that you throw out basic sound doctrine. That's not what Paul has in mind, nor does he tell them to agree on absolutely everything, including their preferences. Paul is encouraging a common attitude of Christ and gospel-centeredness. If the ladies can center on the gospel and pursue the attitude of Christ, they will be able to go on with the work. It points us directly back to Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Basically what Paul is saying here is that agreeing in Christ requires having the same attitude as Christ. Humility humbling yourself. And so here's the steps that need to be taken for there to be agreeing in Christ. Honestly admit sin to Christ and to others. Honestly admit. Listen, I'll be the first to tell you, I know I'm a sinner. I know that there's sin in my life. I don't have it all together. Honestly admit it. When you're in conflict with someone else, look in the mirror before you try to decide who's right and who's wrong. Humbly submit in prayer to Christ with others. Take these issues to the Lord. Humbly submitting yourself to the Lord and with others together in the Lord. Pray with one another. And then here's the hardest part. Are you ready? Happily extend grace in Christ to others. So this requires both parties doing this, honestly admitting sin, humbly submitting in prayer, and then extending grace all in Christ. Agree in Christ. Colossians, Paul would say it this way in chapter 3, 12, and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Did you hear that? 
if one of you happens to have a complaint about another, what are you to do? Forgive. You know, forgiveness takes one. There is always forgiveness. There can always be forgiveness when there is a disagreement because it only takes one. Reconciliation takes two. In Ephesians, Paul writes this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Honestly, sometimes we say that we have forgiven some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but the bitterness that is revealed in our words tell otherwise. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. What do we do when we disagree? We're quick to talk about it. Maybe run to others. And so Paul, even in Romans, would give a long list of what it looks like to take a course of action. Let me read these verses to you. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own, in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, I love this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When there are disagreements, when there are conflicts, as far as it's up to you, live at peace. Live peaceably with all. And the reason we look at this one first and we spend so much time on this one is because the greatest conflict that there is is the conflict between a sinner and a holy God. The greatest conflict, the greatest relational conflict is the fact that we are sinful beings and there is a holy God that cannot look upon sin. And so how do you reconcile with a holy God? Well, it's those same steps. You admit sin. And you don't just admit that you're a sinner. You submit in prayer to Christ. So you admit, then you submit to him, and then you receive a grace that is unmerited and undeserved. Let me ask you, have you come to a point where you agree in Christ that you are a sinner? Have you come to a point in your life where you agree in Christ that you need to submit your life to him? Have you come to a point where you have received an unmerited grace that you didn't earn or deserve? Romans 5.10 says, for while we were, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You know what? I said reconciliation takes two. You know what? Christ Jesus has done the finished work. He has put on flesh and he has given his life so that we can be reconciled to God. We are to admit that we are sinners. 
We are to submit to him in prayer and his lordship, and we then receive a grace. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I encourage you with this verse, John 1, 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I love to think about the fact that you cannot out God's grace. There is nothing you've done. You cannot run so far that he does not pour out grace upon grace. And it is nothing you've done to deserve it. Joy-filled Christians who have received grace upon grace extend grace upon grace because we seek reconciliation in Christ over being right. If you are at disagreement this Christmas season, I encourage you to agree in Christ. Number two, I told you I'd spend a while on that one. A joy-filled course of action is rejoicing in Christ. Many of you have this verse memorized. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in Christ. Paul tells us it's, it's an imperative. It's actually a command. It's a command that is repeated just in case you missed it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And joy is a command because it's not a feeling you get when you receive what you desire, but it's an action you display when you realize you didn't get what you deserve. Listen, we can rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, when we remember that we have been given grace upon grace and we do not deserve it. What a wonderful gift of Jesus Christ. So no matter what situation you're in, no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, there is reason to rejoice because there is one who put on flesh, who humbled himself and was obedient, even to the point of death, death on the cross, so that we could be made right before God. That gives you reason to rejoice, am I right? Now, a lot of times we think of joy and rejoicing as, as, that, as that attitude that you have when something goes right. And this is best displayed for many as kids will go underneath the tree this week and they will unwrap presents and they will open up a present and they will cling to that present. They will hold on to that present. They will find such joy in that present until the next present comes along and then that, that thing's tossed and they tear into the next one and then they hold on to that one and then the next present comes and they tear. And then at the end of the day, they're not even playing with any of the toys, just the boxes they came in. That kind of joy is fleeting. But again, I say rejoice because you have given, given a grace that you do not deserve. Third, a joy-filled course of action is showing reasonableness in Christ. Reasonableness, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Reasonableness, this is a difficult word to translate. Many translations will say graciousness, gentleness, or forbearing or forbearance. D.A. Carson says it this way, it's the opposite of being contentious and self-seeking. Let your reasonableness be known to all. 
a joy-filled follower of Christ shows reasonableness by demonstrating a spirit of graciousness. A spirit of graciousness. We do this by gently letting people grow in their sanctification without becoming frustrated, irritable, and contentious with them. Even impatient. So we have, we've all been at, in that point in our life where someone does something and we say, I would never do that. I would never. There's not much joy in that statement. We are to walk with people with reasonableness, with graciousness, with gentleness and forbearance. I found this quote by Gerald Sitzer, which I think is so powerful. Impatient people have an inflated view of themselves, having lost the capacity to see themselves as sinners in the process of becoming saints. They also have bad memory. They have forgotten about all the foolish decisions they made, the stupid things they said to others, the petty concerns that occupied their minds. Every so often, we need to be reminded of what we once were and how undesirable it was. Many people have been forbearing toward us, our parents, children, teachers, friends, associates. Is it any surprise that God commands us to do the same for others? A sober view of ourselves will make us much quicker to put up with the immaturity of others. Many of us need to be reminded that we once walked that same path. Oftentimes, Christians get a bad reputation as being judgmental, as not being reasonable, as being contentious, as being harsh. That's why Paul would say in Romans 2, 1 through 4, to the religious people, therefore you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, who, you who judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If we're judgmental, we will lack joy. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The way that that is translated is often interpreted two different ways, that the judge is at hand, that one day we will stand before him. It is also translated that he is close, and he is willing to give you his spirit of reasonableness to fill you so that you can then share that kindness and gentleness with others in the hopes of leading them to repentance. There's not many people who come to repentance by being judged. But there are many who come to repentance through the loving, gracious kindness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is then extended through his church. A joy-filled life is not found in passing judgment on another. It's found in showing others God's kindness that leads them to repentance. After all, we would have no joy if God's kindness hadn't first led us to repentance. Fourthly, a joy-filled course of action is having prayerful peace in Christ. Verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety and worry. I want to be tender here as I address this issue. I, too, have often dealt with anxiety and worry and stress, and though mine may be mild in comparison to many, I know the crippling effects of depression. I know that there's many in this room and many who will hear this message who feel alone, who are carrying a baggage. And it's my prayer that the peace of God that surpasses understanding would fill your hearts. The polls, I will get it together, I promise. The polls are trending in a direction that are scary. In 2019, before COVID hit, it said that there was 11% of adults who dealt with anxiety disorder and depressive disorder, 11%. Today, that percentage is 41% of adults. And so I want to comfort you with Scripture because that's all I know how to do. It's not that I have the right words to say. But thinking about the fact that after Jesus put on flesh, after he put on humanity, meaning that he put on himself human emotion, said this, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God who clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious. Anxiety kills joy. Anxiety makes you self-consumed. When we are consumed with our worries, we are more likely to isolate and close in. Anxiety is like carrying a weight that ultimately keeps you from your purpose in his kingdom. 
Therefore, the only remedy is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And there and only there will you find peace. So what I'd like to do is, before I move on to the fifth point, is ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And right there, pray. If you're dealing with anxiety, cast it upon the Lord. Christmas time is one of the most anxious times for people. If you're chronically anxious and you're not continually praying, we're in sin. D.E. Carson says, I've yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. So as you pray, let me read these scriptures to you. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which of you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? Father, we pause and we come before you casting our cares upon you because you care for us. We ask and we seek and we knock because you're a good father. We thank you for grace upon grace. Father, right now I pray that your peace that surpasses understanding would fill the hearts of those who are carrying a weight. It's in Christ's name, amen. Finally, a joy-filled course of action is having a thoughtful practice in Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Well, you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, if we continue to fill our minds with filth and consume the things of this world, our lives will not be joy-filled. They will be unsatisfied, empty, and anxious. You know, I, I think about these things. Finally, brothers, change the way you think. And the only way to change the way you think is to change, about, change the things that you're pouring into your mind. If we continue to fill our minds with the things of this world, we'll continue to find ourselves seeking a course of action because we have found ourselves in a horrible situation. Can't even begin to cover all the things that we watch, that we read, that we listen to, that are damaging the mind of a believer. I'm not trying to be legalistic here at all. But we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
This is why Paul would say in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by his mercies, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Likewise, in Ephesians 4, 17 through 23, Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. I think John MacArthur says it well. Spiritual stability is a result of how a person thinks. I'm going to ask you, are you spiritually stable today? What have you been filling your mind with? The Bible leaves no doubt that people's lives are the product of their thoughts. So as we close, I want to walk through these. Whatever is true, we must not let the lies of the enemy and the lies of this world fill our minds. We must not buy into the lies. Whatever is honorable means that which is morally excellent. We must keep our minds from dwelling in the gutter. We must keep our minds from going there. Whatever is just, another version, whatever is right, means that which aligns with God's word. The basis for what is right and just is written in the word of God, and our minds will be transformed when we align our minds with the word of God. Whatever is pure. The Greek, the Greek word there is hagios, which is the root word for holy, holiness or sanctification. This means we need to dwell upon the things that draw us closer to God, not the things that would push us away from God. Whatever is lovely means to dwell upon the things that God finds lovely and beautiful, things that reveal his divine image rather than mar his image with sin. Whatever is commendable, we are to think about and concentrate on finding the good in others not their faults. If we are continually thinking about the faults in others, we will not be joy-filled. Whatever is excellence, if there is any excellence, Stephen Lawson says it this way, only that which reflects high moral standards should dominate our thinking. Whatever reflects the holiness of Almighty God, that which is morally excellent and pleasing, should fill our minds and occupy our thoughts if we dwell upon that which is excellent, we will live spiritually excellent lives. And finally, I think this one wraps it all up. If there's anything worthy of praise, finally, to sum it up, dwell upon and think upon the things that would be applauded in the presence of God. Are there things that go through your mind that would not be applauded in the presence of God? 
the Lord is near. A joy-filled call of action, course of action. So let me ask you, what do you dwell upon? What do you think about? What do you watch? What do you listen to? What are you pouring into your mind? Are they things that point you towards Christ or things that pull you away from him? As we enter this week awaiting on his advent, reminding ourselves of his advent, maybe we should do some mental house cleaning, preparing him room, getting rid of the things that are in our minds that should not be there, and saying, our hearts, our minds, and our lives welcome you, Jesus. Can we pray? Father, we bow before you again in humble, repentant hearts, longing for your presence in our lives, that you would be close, that you would lead us, that you would guide our minds, that you would renew our minds. Father, that we would be humble and gentle and kind to those that we come in contact with, that we would not be irritable, contentious, but we would be full of grace. Father, we admit that we are sinners. We submit our lives to you as Lord. Father, we thank you for the grace that we've received through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?